Oh man, um, we are continuing our series through uh, Samuel, and uh, I get to, of course, for multiple times this past couple of years, get to teach on hard topics on Family Sunday. Um, so we wouldn't have it any other way but to give me, thank you, Dale, um, David and Bathsheba today. <laughs> yes, lovely. So the title of the sermon today is From Malice to Mercy. Um, and for, um, for those of you that are a little nervous right now, it's going to be an overview. We're not getting into details. <laughs> but it, it's a familiar story with us. In fact, David really has two um, of the more famous, well, one famous, one infamous stories of his life are really the, the story we looked at with him and Goliath and this story. Um, he was uh, uh, a king. He was a man known as, as uh, a man after God's own heart. He took down a giant um, and then found himself in the middle of a tremendously horrible scandal. So today we're going to, I'll give a brief history um, and then if you want to read the, the details of it, you can find it in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It'll take you a couple minutes to read through it. Um, <clears throat> but it's really fascinating, all the details surrounding it. And there, and there are a lot of lessons to learn from the life of David uh, in general, but particularly this story, there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from it today. But today I want to focus on the mercy that uh, he received and the mercy that we can receive. So uh, he was known as, as a man after God's own heart. He had defeated the Philistines. Um, he had united the 12 tribes of Israel. He established Jerusalem as the capital. Um, and he was in the middle of conquering more kingdoms, more people groups. Um, and he, uh, he, he comes around to springtime when all the, all the wars and, and stuff would begin to take place again. And he sent his troops out. Uh, but this year he decided to stay behind. Maybe he was just wanting a break, longer break. Or maybe he had intentions that weren't the greatest. So he sends his troops out. And uh, one day he wakes from his couch and, and gets up and goes to the rooftop and just probably has a good stretch, enjoying some sunshine. And he happened to see a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop, which, by the way, the, it was common for the baths to be on the roofs. Uh, because the, the, the sun would heat the water more efficiently that way. Um, however, it wasn't necessarily common for them to be exposed and, and seeing. But this day he happened to see this beautiful woman, and he, he says to his servants, he says, who is this person? And, and he discovered that it was Bathsheba, and he called for her, and she uh, came to him, and the rest is history. You see, her husband was out fighting the wars that David should have been out with, um, but David was home, Bathsheba was home, and the rest is history. She became pregnant. David kind of freaked out and was thinking like, oh boy, what, what are we going to do about this problem? So he calls for Uriah to come home, and Uriah's like, oh, okay, my guys are out there. I'm coming home, and David's like, you know, you just need some rest, buddy. Why don't you go, why don't you go enjoy some time at home? And he's like, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm not going to do that while my, my troops are out fighting. That would be actually dishonorable to them. And so he's going to sleep on the footstep of his door. He's not going to go home and have his conjugal rights. He's going to sleep on the footstep of his door in honor 
of his troops still being out there. Well, this creates a problem for David because he was hoping to hide the pregnancy by Uriah coming home, except that didn't take place. So Uriah goes back out and David uh, sends word to send him to the front line where he knew it would be certain death. So he has Uriah killed, essentially. And David then took Bathsheba as his wife. Now, a little bit of background of Bathsheba. Her dad was one of David's mighty men. So her dad killed, protected, fought with David. Her grandfather, her, her dad's dad, was David's, uh, one of David's primary counselors. So David knew this family. He knew this young woman. That didn't seem to matter to him. How does a shepherd boy intimately experiencing the presence of God as he cares for his sheep, as he gets to know and think on the stars and, and build his faith and his knowledge of God, going to a front line, seeing this, this Philistine mock that God that David so intimately knew, and seeing the rest of the Israelites allowing this to happen in passion, run out, kill this giant, untrained in battle, but kill this giant and have such a faith and a love for God. How does that young man find himself in this situation? We're told he's a man after God's own heart. And in fact, Bathsheba's grandpa, grandfather would later join Absalom, one of David's sons, in revolting. And actually, her grandfather not just wanted to revolt against him. He actually, specifically in chapter 17, says, like, I want to kill that man. One of David's closest counselors ended up wanting to kill him. David finds himself undoubtedly in the middle of a bad situation but we're told he's a man after God's own heart. I love what Dale wrote in his book, uh, King David, and I'm hoping that he'll allow us to purchase that or get a hold of it somehow because it's amazing. Um, but he says, the Bible never flatters its heroes. I love that idea. So we're, we're not given this, this false uh, perception of the heroes that, that the Bible gives us. They are very human. They are very full of failures, and let, yet God still uses these failed uh, um, leaders to bring about his will. And he goes on to say, he says, this man, speaking of David, who united a nation, had a divided heart. He successfully built an empire, but did not care for his heart. Isn't that the trap we fall into? We get so busy oftentimes building our empires, even in finding success, that we often fail to care for our hearts. Look what David wrote in Psalm 23 as he's an older man reflecting on his life, undoubtedly reflecting on his failures and successes. And he says, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a pretty bold statement from a guy who just had his friend killed, took his wife, 
and betrayed a nation. It essentially mocked God. That's a pretty bold statement. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You read Psalm 23, you start to see that there is something, either David is completely out of touch with reality, or David, looking back on his failures and probably successes, was able to write this from a, from a, a, a place of truth, a place of reality. And that's where I hope for us to get to this morning. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts, God? Would you pour out your spirit on us, Lord, that we would understand um, what you have for us this morning, Lord? God, that you would bring to light the things that um, that are tucked away, Lord, that you would allow us to understand why we're given the example of these stories, Lord. And Father, that we would um, as we journey this morning, Lord, that we would leave here with our eyes uh, in a greater fix on you, Lord. And we ask this in your name. Amen. What came from David's sin? Well, we know that the baby he had with Bathsheba died. They would go on later to have another baby, and that would, that would be Solomon, but their first baby died. A lifelong war with his sons? Yep. Absolute dysfunction in his family, incest, all that sort of stuff. Yep, that happened. Trouble that caused deep anguish his entire life. Mm -hmm. Loyal friends to turn against him. Yep. Devastation to the nation that God gave him to rule over. Yeah. Guilt of innocent blood on his hands. Mm -hmm. And before... Before we look at David's mistakes, before we look at his, I would say even intentional sins, he was very intentional uh, and, and say, man, I, I would never go that far. First um, Corinthians 10, 12 says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That should be a very good warning for us because we should be very careful to say we would never, ellipsis. Because in the right circumstances, the right prolonged circumstances or situations, and we'd probably be shocked at how, how far we would take our creative imaginations or sin. Someone's calling. That's great. Someone's finally calling. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Um, and so, so these are the real consequences of his sins that he had to live with his entire life. And I, I, would, I would say that David didn't find himself in this major sin. It was a slow progression of compromise. It was a slow fade to allowing the small things to sear his conscience, to, to blind him, to harden his heart towards the things of the Lord, towards the young shepherd boy that would go up on the line and see, see his God being mocked and run out after an impossible situation. David didn't go from there directly to this, this major sin. It was a slow fade of compromise. And I would imagine that David, even in his Goliath days, was probably thinking, I would not fall like these Israelites who were weakened and afraid and letting God be mocked. I would not be one of these guys. And yet, not, not a whole lot later, 
he found himself in the same situation, and we would be wise to take heed as well. So David has a slow fade to this point, uh, seemingly small acts of disobedience. He was told as he was entering his kingship, so don't take uh, extra wives for yourself. And yet David found himself marrying women who had fathers that would make treaties with David. And from David's perspective, it made sense. He's, he's ruling a kingdom. So why not? I mean, why would God want war? This would make sense, Lord. It's, it's common to have multiple wives. Why would I not just take a wife and make a treaty unless people have to die? That makes sense, Lord. All right, I'm going to do that over and over and over again. And yet God told him not to. But it made sense in his mind to do that. You see the slow compromise of thinking that, well, maybe I know a little bit better than what God has instructed me in. David writes in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the truth of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's a progression almost always in our lives. We find ourselves walking, kind of giving ear to these ideas, these compromises from the counsel of the wicked. Is, is, did God really say not to do those things? Would God really be upset with this? It's just a little of this. It's just a little of that. No one's getting harmed by it. It's not a big deal. In fact, it kind of makes sense. And then we find ourselves not walking anymore, but actually standing in the way of sinners. Now we're engaging in the relationship with sinners. And after that, we find ourselves sitting in the seat of scoffers. Those who would now call what is good evil and what is evil good. That's what scoffers do. They scoff at that sort of, those sorts of things. And we find ourselves sitting in those seats after not too long. All sin carries inevitable consequences. Not just adultery and murder, but lying and lust and bitterness and pride and sinful anger and coveting, right? Like kids, you experience the consequences of, of, of sin too, right? Like you experience the consequences of coveting your siblings' toys and you decide, hey, I'm going to hit them. And your parents are like, well, there's going to be a consequence for that. So here's your consequence. What about lying, Right? I mean, we, we have these experiences and we think, man, I just need to lie to my parents because it's better for me to lie than to tell the truth because I'm going to be in trouble if I tell the truth. But a little secret, guys, I hate to say it, we're like varsity level liars, okay? <laughs> and you guys are like JV at best, Probably even like freshman level liars. Like we we know we know because we've been practicing it for years and years and years and years. And so that's why when you think, how did they know? Because we're really good at it. But it all comes with consequences. Because in the same way that you find yourself doing this and acting these ways with, with your family and with your parents, we find ourselves as your parents doing the same things in our lives with the Lord. 
that we find ourselves saying, God, I just need to do this, or I'm going to lie about this. I got I to gotta find a way out of the trouble I'm in. And this is what happens with David right here, is he begins to think, my goodness, now I'm in trouble. I have to find my way out of it. Instead of coming clean and, and bringing what was done in an in a, in a act of sin to light, he's so, he's so worried about the consequences that he has this man killed. And the consequences were devastating the rest of his life. So it doesn't matter if you're seven or 70. All sin carries inevitable and most of the time terrible consequences. And the problem is that we think when God asks us to do or not to do something, you know, it, he says it's for our good, but the reality is we, we actually don't believe him that it's for our good when we do contrary to what he's asking us to either engage in or, or, or abstain from. Maybe God just doesn't understand my needs. Maybe he doesn't understand the struggles I'm having. So I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm not going to do this. When Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, kids out there, you guys feel that one when your siblings are like wanting something? <laughs> and... You're like, well, Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, but mm -mm, he doesn't see my sibling. And they always get their way. So, so we begin, we begin, and it starts from childhood, and it doesn't end in adulthood. We we still struggle with the same things. This is why this is this is a problem of humanity. It's a problem of the heart of humanity. But what we actually are saying and believing is that God is fundamentally against us. So where's the hope that we have? If we're if we're if we're if we have these hearts that are that that tend to sin, that tend to find it, find themselves caught up in sin, whether intentionally or just in the moment, we're caught up in this. Like, where is where is the hope that we can have in something like this? It, it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe maybe we see the effects of lust. Maybe we see the effects of gossip and laziness and selfishness and addiction or pride. We just can't seem to escape it. And we think like, well, I'm always going to be this way. So I'll just keep going to church. I'll just keep singing. But I don't actually understand how God and power and freedom has anything to do with my life. Like maybe your desire is to escape from the traps and the snares that you find yourself caught in. But over and over again, we seem to find ourselves just caught up in it most of the time and sometimes before we even realize we're caught up in it. We just can't seem to escape it. So what do we do? Do we try harder? How well has that worked? I mean, how many times have we, since our childhood, I remember being a, a young boy and asking God, and I have, I'm in the middle of, of three boys, and I remember asking God as a little boy, God, please help me. Help us have a good day. Help us not get in trouble. I expected God to just make it easy. And he wasn't. And we had a lot of fighting all the time. And I'm thinking like, man, is there any escape from this? Is there any, is there any escape from the snares, the traps of the conditions of our human hearts? Because the reality is we're going to sin. We can only hope that the consequences of our sin are not as devastating as David's. But we have prisons full of 
consequences like that. We have broken families full of consequences like that, don't we? So where's our hope? I think the first place is understanding that there's an abundance of forgiveness and mercy available. Now, this is hard for us to understand because, kids, here's some transparency about your parents. It's not easy for us to show you mercy, and we don't do a great job of it a lot of times. In fact, we are going to let you down in the amount of mercy we show compared to the amount of mercy that God offers us. God will always offer more mercy. And here's the other reality. We don't always want to give you mercy. We do not. Our parents didn't always want to give us mercy. We felt like we had to earn it somehow. You feel like you have to earn our mercy and hope that it might be a day that we're having a good day and we want to show you mercy. But God is different. See, God continually desires to show mercy. He's not reluctantly giving it. He's not withholding it uh, uh, selfishly. He is, he is a God full of extravagant grace and mercy. And when we realize that we have a God who desires to show mercy, that is going to bring about a desire to give him our, our sin, to give him the things that are secret in our heart. And the second place we can find hope is not in more effort. It's actually in surrender. For us parents, we, we, the older we get, and kids, you guys will get here too, the older you get, the more you want to control. And the more you want to control, the less you want to surrender. And the less you want to surrender, the more you realize you need to because your control isn't doing it. We have this desire to control our circumstances. We have this desire to earn our way. If we could just be good enough, mom and dad will be happy. If we could just be good enough, God will be happy with me. And so we feel like there's this, there's this inevitable letdown of God because we will never be able to behave well enough for him because we're trying in our own effort. But see, the quicker we can surrender to his goodness, the quicker we can receive his mercy, receive his grace. For the believers here this morning, and because of Christ, we need to understand a very key element to how sin works in our life. That it is, it is not us standing here with our big sin here that we're trying to deal with and God is on the other side of that sin. God is not waiting for us to deal with our sin so that we can get back to him. God is actually with us, fighting that sin with us, empowering us to resist that sin, empowering us to, to seek him, to be with him, to rely on him, to care for that sin. We don't have to do it in our own effort. And for those of us here this morning that might not believe, might not have put our faith and profession in the Lord, are you frustrated of trying to get good enough before you think God will accept you? I bet you are. Because it's a very exhausting way of life. To see the righteousness that you think you need to have and to think that it's on you to take care of that. 
God is not waiting for you to clean up. He's waiting for you to surrender to him that he would join you in that effort, that he would wash that sin away. See, in Christ, we have no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. So what do we do with the sin? Well, the sin leaves devastating effects on earth, I can tell you that much. But the sin that we struggle, not that we practice, not that we, that we justify, but the sin that we struggle against is covered by the blood of Jesus. But for, for the sin that we allow into our lives outside of Christ, it is actually the very sin that condemns us. It's the very sin that led Jesus to the cross. Behold, he knocks, but he's not going to force his way in. He knocks at the door of our hearts, and whether you invite him in is based on how you respond to that knock. In other words, God is going to knock on your heart. That comes through the form of conviction. That comes through the form of, of seeing things differently, of, your, of the eyes of your heart being opened a little bit more. And if you say, no, I'm good. I don't need this. Or, yeah, actually, I need this. And that surrender takes place. You will find an empowerment. You will find forgiveness. You'll find mercy, even in the struggle to learn to not sin. You see, we have to understand that there's no hope of escape for the Christian or non-Christian. There's no hope for the escape, whether it's consequences of sin or the, or, or the condemnation from that sin for, for, for the unbeliever. There's no escape, no power outside of a relationship with Christ. That's why Jesus is so central to our faith is that Jesus is the power. He is the blood. He is the righteousness that we are required to have. That's why having knowledge of rules of Christianity does not help us in our faith. That's why it hasn't helped the Jews for thousands of years. Because more rules is just knowledge. There's no relationship there. Kids, you guys know the rules in your house. How well do you like, you know, I know the rule. I really want to obey it because I know it. No, when you realize like, hey, mom and dad have something better for us. I'm going to obey this because it's, it's just wrong. It's not what I want to be doing. It's not the peace that I want in our house. This is, this is why the Bible would describe as an abiding life with Christ. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What is more hopeless on earth than believing God is a liar? I mean, think about this for a second. Not even people who today would put their faith and profess God. What happens when they're dying? What happens when they're in circumstances that they find themselves weighing over their head? Who do they call out to? God. There, there's this innate acknowledgement that there is a higher power. For us, that's the God of, of, of Scripture. But everyone is drawn to this idea. What happens when that God is now a liar? 
And he's saying that anyone who says that they don't have sin, that their sin doesn't matter, that it's not really that big of a deal, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some of the minor offenses that we might have committed. No, he says, from all unrighteousness. If you think that our kids, our children are JV level liars, we are JV level sinners for what the cross can cover. We cannot outsin the work of the cross. There is never a sin that cannot be forgiven. And I mean the darkest of sins that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He goes on, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father called your pastor, your priest. And you go confess and you go to church and no, it's not what he says at all. In fact, he says you have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is the righteousness of of Jesus, who stands at the Father's justice, holy, just Father, full of mercy, but also holy, full of of hatred of sin. And our advocate, Jesus, is the righteousness that stands in the way of the Father and judgment on humanity. The Father is full of love, but he is full of justice. And our sin does not go unnoticed. It doesn't go undealt with. Every little sin we've created, whether we think it's minute or whether it's a major sin, every sin has to be dealt with by a holy God. And it is the righteousness of Christ that stands as an advocate and says, Dad, I've paid for this one. I've paid for this one. My blood has covered this sin. What an incredible reality. And perhaps one of the greatest evidences and messages of hope for our friends and family who don't love God is this very reality that God covers ours and will cover theirs alike. There's no room for self-righteousness in our faith. There's no room for self-righteousness in the lives of our our unbelieving friends and family. Man, if we're not lifting chins upwards towards Jesus, we're doing evangelism all wrong. If we're trying to use our moral lives to evangelize our friends, here's the reality. No one's going to sit at a restaurant, see you not drinking a beer and say, he's a Christian. I need to be a Christian. I'm not advocating for drinking, by the way. I'm just saying our moral, there, there are plenty of moral people in this world who are not believers, who, who are, are living sometimes better lives than we are on this earth. And people aren't looking at their lives going, well, I must, be, I must be a Christian. Now there's room for witness, but that witness should be a reflection of Jesus. It should be a reflection of, of a person full of mercy, full of grace, full of understanding, full of a holy lifestyle also, but not just increased morality. And Jesus, the righteous, He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. That's amazing. Verse three, and he says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, 
a person can absolutely be educated on the things of Christianity, on theology, on doctrine, on all those things. And if he's not walking in obedience, being led by the Spirit, ignoring the Spirit's leading in his life, he's a liar. It does not matter how long a person's gone to church, how familiar with Christianity they are, if a person is, is, is quenching, as the Bible would put it, quenching the Holy Spirit, it has nothing to do with the knowledge in his head or, or the Christianese that he's learned. If he is not in obedience to the Spirit's leading in his life, he can say he loves God all he wants, that he abides and walks with God. But those are just words. Because the natural outpouring of walking with the Lord is obedience. And in verse 5, he says, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, if we say, yeah, we're walking with the Lord, like the reasonable reality to our lives is we should be walking as Jesus walked. We should be showing compassion as Jesus showed compassion on. We should, be, we should be pointing people to the Father as Jesus pointed people to the Father. We should be loving selflessly. We should be giving of ourselves. See, we're powerless, though, and hopeless to even resist sin to give us opportunity to do this outside of the Spirit's empowerment, outside of a newness of life. And what we can be assured of for those of us who have professed our faith in Jesus is that God's Spirit is giving to us. We do not need uh, special gifts of the Spirit to prove that we have the Spirit. God's Spirit is in us when we profess our faith to Him. And His Spirit guides us. He convicts us. He leads us into all truth. And let me, let me take a moment to tell you, friends and young men and women and children, that God sees sin, even the ones that you get that you that you think are secret. This goes from the youngest here to the oldest here. God sees every bit of sin. And God hates that sin. He's a holy God. He doesn't overlook it. He'll always deal with it. He'll never let it go unchecked. Never let it go undealt with. But we have an advocate. We have a person named Jesus who put all the weight of the sin of the world on his back and said, for those who rely on me, who trust in me, I bear all their sin. I bear all their sin. But if we protect our sin, if we refuse to acknowledge that we have this sin in us, this darkness in us. If we, if we refuse it, if we refuse to bring it to, a, to the light, God will make our sin known and we'll be held accountable for it. But can I also tell you though, that if you desire, if you're willing to confess this reality that you actually already know, that God will deal with your heart through mercy. He'll call you to repentance. He'll call you back in. He'll call you into a right relationship with him. And he'll wash you in that blood. 
Can I tell you that as much as he hates the sin of the world, he also hates the reality that we have to live with consequences of that sin? Like he's not a God just waiting to say, hey, moral behavior, I need, I need you to, to just be moral and that's it. Like he hates the idea that David had to live the rest of his life with the chaos and the destruction of his family as a result of his sin. He hates the fact that we have to carry the consequences of some of our sin for our entire lives. He is not pleased by that. He is not looking forward to that. And that's why he's saying, oh, little children, oh, anyone, please understand that I have something far better for you than what you want right now at this moment. And there's going to be consequences you don't even see now. I'm asking you to trust me and abstain from this. Abstain from this. And I know it's, it seems pleasing. It seems fine. It seems secret. It seems like not such a big deal, David, to take wives, but that's going to lead to small compromises. It's going to lead to major destruction in your life. And he's asking us just to trust him and say, I'm not against you when I ask you to stay away from this. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, the world is going to tempt us with these things. But I'm asking you to trust me more than you trust the message of the world that says now, now, now. Ultimate pleasure is now. Live your best life now. That's what you need to do. And God's like, I have something far greater for you. Parents, we don't even have to look beyond our own children to see, man, don't we want to bless them? But how do we bless them when they're in division, when they're fighting amongst themselves, when they're, when they're disobedient and, and all these things? We can't, even though our heart desires to bless them, when they don't walk in love, when they don't walk to the standards of peace that we want for our family, we can't bless them. God is the same way with us. He desires mercy. He desires blessing in our life. And he's asking us, please, please walk in this way. And yeah, we will have to lay down our lives. We will have to pick up our cross and daily choose to do this. But there's reward. There's blessing in not carrying a life full of, of regret and consequences. When has sin ever actually served you for your better? One time, just name one time that sin has actually served you for your better that has actually led to the peace and the joy that your heart longs for. And I'm not talking about temporary pleasure, but I'm talking about the deep joy that your heart longs for. When has it ever served you for that? The beauty, though, is even in our sin, God has the ability, according to Romans 8, 28, to work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So that means that when we have these things in our lives, these sin consequences, God still works that, that act of disobedience out for our good, oftentimes through the form of wisdom. Like, see, don't do that again. And we learn to walk in that wisdom. But it's never led to the peace we desire. I'll have the worship team come up. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Cleanse us from all of the unrighteousness. And you know what happens when this takes place in us? Children, this is a really, really wise words for you. And I say these words to keep you from trouble, to keep you from consequences. You know what happens when you do something and you come clean to your parents about it? They might be upset, but I promise you that there is more mercy in that moment 
than if they catch you through multiple lies, multiple things later on down the road. Because our wrath builds up. God's wrath doesn't work that way, but ours does. And for those of us parents in here, for those of us adults, God works the same way with us. Is that his mercy is right now. And like David, we want to cover up and cover up and cover up and cover up. We find new ways of, of, of keeping our sin secret. We find new ways of, of making it look like it's not that big of a deal. We do the same thing to the Lord. And he's saying, guys, come to me and I desire to show mercy. I don't desire to shame you. I don't desire to condemn you. I desire to give you life. Jesus says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. Some of us here might not believe that there's a God. Some of us might never have considered ourselves to be sinners deserving of God's judgment. Maybe we do some bad things once in a while, but it's not worth of God's judgment. Some of us may see our sin and profess to walk with God, but have convinced ourselves that he's not that concerned with our sin. It's not that big of a deal. That, God, it's only affecting me. Some of us maybe see our sin as something we're imprisoned to, trapped in. We hate it. We just don't see a way out of it. Either way, wherever you're at this morning, if sin is present in your life, there's suffering. See, some of us have been sinned against by other people. And we're dealing with the sufferings of somebody else's sinning against us. But some of us have sinned against other people and caused great suffering. Either way, where there is sin present, there is suffering. It always accompanies So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to bring it all before the Lord. I want revival in your hearts, in my own. I want restored hope in the times of hopelessness. I want an abundance of joy. I want our minds so fixed on God that we actually experience what we're told we can experience called perfect peace. And how often do we experience perfect peace in this world? But we're told that the one whose mind is fixed so greatly on the Lord that we can actually live on earth in perfect peace. Doesn't mean without troubles. It means that there's a peace that surpasses all understanding that we have access to. So what I want us to do this morning before we enjoy communion together so I want to read over a psalm that David wrote regarding his situation with Bathsheba. So what I'd like us to do is I'd like, for those of you who, who have these things that God's maybe stirring up in your heart right now, I want to read and, and kind of pray through this psalm and see what the Lord would do in your heart through it. So if you will, would you, would you just close your eyes and, and 
listen to the plead of David after murdering his friend, stealing his wife, causing absolute destruction in his family, mocking the God that gave him a nation to rule. Listen to what his prayer is. And I would encourage you to let it be yours as well. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Would you blot out my transgressions? David's saying, I've heard of this mercy. Please help me see it and receive it. Goes on, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I finally see it. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David's saying, where, where I fooled others, you see clearly, God. I see my sin clearly and confess it right now to you, Lord. It says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, though, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Open the eyes of our hearts beyond our head knowledge. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Lord, would you bleach the stains out of our hearts that we too may have hearts that are cleansed, that are white, that are pure. 